Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm really excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Michael Bosworth. He's the founder of Michael Bosworth Leadership, and he's the author of some classic best-selling sales books, including Solution Selling, Customer-Centric Selling, and most recently, What Great Salespeople Do, The Science of Selling Through Emotional Connection, and The Power of Story. Mike, welcome to Accelerate. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Andy. Well, thanks for joining me. So, Take a minute and introduce yourself for the people that uh, don't know you already. Maybe tell us how you got your start in sales as well. Well, well, you know, I'm old, so that could go a while. So you might have to give me the hook on this one. But, <laughs> okay, uh, I'll do that. I um, I um, had a, a pretty uh, unhappy childhood and ended up um, going into Vietnam or into the Army when I was 19. And I got out at uh, 21 and went to college and went to Cal Poly Pomona majored in marketing and business management, and Xerox came on campus uh, looking for an entry-level employee for one of their startup divisions, Xerox Computer Services. And uh, Xerox Computer Services in 1969 invented cloud computing, and now it's 1972, and they have um, 50 local Los Angeles customers, including city governments like El Segundo and the city of Pasadena, and manufacturing companies and distribution companies, all hooked up via phone lines and dumb terminals to our central computer in Marina del Rey, California, where we had pre-developed business applications, general ledger, payables, receivables, mm -hmm, pay mm -hmm. inventory, and all that stuff. And they needed somebody on the help desk. And so... You know, the old adage used to be you get into a, a good company through the mail room. Well, I got into the help desk. And uh, on that help desk, I ended up learning how all these functional job titles out there in our customer base, people processing accounts payable and people doing order processing and people planning production. And uh, so I learned how these job titles used to do their job before they had our cool cloud-based applications and how they do their jobs after. So then I got to go out and be a field uh, installer of these applications. So I grew to hate salespeople because 
it was my job to take a manufacturing company and convert them from their old way of running their business to our system. And pretty much every customer they gave me, the salespeople told them it would do things that it wouldn't do. And these are, you know, legendarily well-trained Xerox salespeople. Well, the funny thing was, is um, they were virtually all former IBM salespeople because our CEO was from <laughs> IBM. And so he hired only IBM salespeople. And there we go. We can say the same thing about IBM salespeople. Right. And, and they were highly trained. But when they came into Xerox Computer Services, they were trained, as we all were, with six weeks of product training. And basically that meant at the end of that six weeks, you had to demo every application. Right. So you can go make a sales call or do anything until you could demo accounts payable, accounts receivable, MRP, whatever. And the problem with that was, was when they get out of product school, despite all that IBM training, uh, sales training, they go out and meet a controller or a materials manager or a manufacturing manager. And all they really could say is, could I show you a demo of our product? So anyway... Back to my story, after um, a year on the help desk and a year installing new clients, then they made me a farmer for six months. They gave me revenue responsibility for existing clients. And there, again, I had trouble with the salespeople because um, I'd go out and meet my new uh, client and they'd say, well, Mike, I got a problem with you guys right now. What the salesman told me this thing was going to cost 2000 a month and our bill is almost 4000 a month. So again, I had more problems with the uh, traditional salespeople. And luckily, we knew enough, or I knew enough, about how they used our product. And I'd say, well, all right, let's look into it. What was your inventory a year ago? What is it now? And typically, it had dropped dramatically. So I said, so you're saving a ton of money on carrying costs there, right? And what were your collection days a year ago? Mm -hmm. What are they? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it wasn't too hard for me to um, help them see that they were gaining, that, that despite the bill being double what the salesperson said it was, they were, you know, getting massive value from it. Right. All right. So then after six months of being a farmer, they came to me and said, Mike, we want you to be a salesperson. And I said... I had two answers, no and hell no. I said, I'm not that kind of a person. I, and plus, my alcoholic father was a salesman, and he never kept a job longer than six months. So I, I just wanted nothing to do with the whole idea of being a salesperson. And uh, they came back about a week later and said, well, we understand your reluctance, but we think you'd really be good at it, and we want to reduce your risk. So we're going to give it to you in writing that you try sales for six months, and at the end of six months, if you hate it, you have your old techie job back or your farmer job back, and you don't have to take a salary cut. So, you know, any money you make is gravy. Yeah, and, great situation. Yeah, but Xerox wasn't taking much of a risk then because no. back the soonest any newly hired ex-IBM salesperson made their first sale at Xerox Computer Services was seven months. That was the record. So, so they weren't worried about you know, having to pay me too much money, right? When they made me that offer, you can keep your old salary for six months. So, turns out, because of the knowledge I had, 
of how all those different functional titles used our product, I could easily bump into any job title and I say, oh, you're the materials manager. Gee, I've been working with another materials manager for a year and a half. Can I share a story with you? 100% of the time I'd offer that pure story about another similar job title. They said, sure. And I could tell them a 90-second story that outlined the background of the guy. He majored in industrial engineering at Cal Poly, and then he went into manufacturing, and then he went into material control, and then he joined Apex. And so that's the background story. And then his struggle was everybody's mad at him as a materials manager. The CFO's mad at him because he's got way too much inventory. The VP of manufacturing's mad at him because he's missing the shipment schedule because the shortages in the production plan. And, you know, he's having trouble with two different bills of materials, so he's having trouble with the engineers. His job is hell. That's the struggle in the story. Then I tell the turning point. When Ed discovered 18 months ago that Xerox now had a way to replan his entire manufacturing plant overnight versus the two to three weeks it used to take doing it manually, he decided to be an early adopter on an MRP system. Here we are 18 months later. His inventory turns used to be 1.9, and now they're approaching 6. Past due backlog has virtually been eliminated. 95% of the shipments are on time. But enough about me. Tell me what's going on here. <laughs> and so that story filled my pipeline. And I sold more in the first five months on quota than anybody in the history of the company had sold in a full year. Well, that's, that's a great segue to talk about your most recent book, which is about the importance of the, establishing an emotional connection through story with your I prospects. But, but as you know, Andy, back then, as a 28-year-old salesperson, I was doing it intuitively. And most great salespeople sell intuitively, which is why when they first get promoted to management, most of them crash and burn. And the struggle of pretty much every vice president of sales I've ever met is because they sold intuitively, they don't know how to coach their bottom 80%. Right. Right. So I've been spending my life ever since trying to codify and put framework around some of those things I did intuitively so we can teach it to the bottom 80% because that's the holy grail of sales productivity improvement is figure out what the best ones are doing and teach it to the rest. The issue, though, is I discovered in 2008 is that all absolution selling training and customer-centric training and all the other sales productivity methodologies, Miller-Hyman and Holden and power-based and the complex sale, right. et cetera, et cetera. Despite all of that, in 2008, Sales Benchmark Index did a survey of 1,100 B2B sales forces and found that in 2008, 13% of the salespeople brought in 87% of the revenue. And when I saw that number, I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach because when I started solution selling in 1983, my mission was to help my clients lift the bottom 80%. 
And now I find out after all those years, it had gotten worse. The best had gotten better, and the worst had gotten worse. And why do you think that's the case? Well, that's a great question. My clients over the years gave me a clue, which my intellectual arrogance caused me to ignore. And the clue was, Mike, the top 20% love solution selling, but the bottom 80% quit using it within two weeks of the workshop. And when I finally figured out why in 2008, it was because I finally realized that the real difference between the top 20% and the top 13% and the rest of them is their EQ, their emotional intelligence, their ability to connect, their likability. Mm -hmm. It wasn't IQ. It wasn't the number of hours they worked in the week. In the week, it wasn't the number of proposals or cold calls. It was that intuitive ability to emotionally connect and build trust, or what we're calling EQ now, emotional intelligence. Right. And uh, if you've ever looked at solution selling or customer-centric selling, the core to both those methodologies are we identify in advance all the people our salespeople are going to have to have intelligent conversations with by job title in advance, materials managers, controllers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whatever. And then we have the smartest people in our company, our best consultants, write out a list of discovery questions to diagnose their current situation around what we do real, really well, and then a list of visioning questions where we help these job titles visualize a better way. Well, what if, Andy, instead of doing it that way with four steps, you could do it in one step? Would that help? And so those questions were designed to help salespeople shrink that learning curve, that time to expertise. Because when you sell a complex product, there's typically, even for potential top 13% salespeople, if you're lucky enough to hire somebody with that kind of talent, in a complex sales environment, you still won't, you won't real, they won't become a top 13% seller for probably two years because they have to gain expertise in your market and your customers and your capabilities right. and your pricing and your contracts. And, you know, it's, there's just a learning curve. Very interesting. So it's sort of interesting as you describe the situation. I mean, one of the, and I, and I understand because I'd written down a, a point you had made before is, is you talked about how, you know, back when you started at, at Xerox Computer Systems, that basically the reps were trained to say, hey, can I give you a demo of my system? Right. And we look what's happening sort of with this, especially in the software as a service space, uh, but others that are really going all in on inside sales. You've got your sales development reps, you know, basically selling the same thing as, you know, hey, can I sell you a give you a demo of my product? Exactly. But you know what's interesting? is the cloud is forcing companies, technology companies in particular, to finally talk to customers about how they're going to use the product versus watching a demo of how it works. And um, the best way I can make this point of product usage is I don't know, 20 years ago, I was doing an open solution selling workshop at the Doubletree in Del Mar. Mm -hmm. And 
typically people who came to my open workshops, 98% of them sold something complex, sold to a committee, uh, long sell cycle, big dollars, you know, to the right. enterprise. Right. And I'm going around the room asking everybody what they sell. And I get around to this one guy, Richard, and I say, Richard, what do you sell? And he says, Mike, I sell glue. And I said, I paused and I said, gee, I've never had a glue salesperson go through one of my workshops before. And then as I asked, made the next request of my, I almost tried to grab the words and shove them back in my mouth because I realized in real time this, this could be a bad question. I said to him, I said, Richard, tell me about the glue. Well, he's a chemical engineer from MIT and he's selling industrial adhesives. And he, if you ask an engineer to tell you about the glue, get ready for a long answer. <laughs> and he started getting into bonding strength over different temperatures and res, res, resisting mold and vibration and all stuff. And I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing everybody's eyes roll up in their head. And I gave him the timeout sign. I said, Richard, it sounds to me like you're using that word glue as a noun. Can you change that word glue to a verb and tell me about your product? And he was a really smart guy and he got it. And he realized that a better description would be the gluing his customers do, how they use the glue in their manufacturing process right. versus me, versus him giving me all the chemical specifications of the glue. Well, that that same noun verb paradigm all companies are having to go through now because it, it used to be if you had a sexy product you could sell it as a noun and maybe you'd find enough people who'd look at it like the iphone mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you can pretty much do it steve jobs did a demo of an iphone and he sold a ton of them because the people looking at that demo were all able to figure out on their own how they're going to use it. They could all create their own buying vision. But for most complex products and services sold to the enterprise, if they knew how good it was, they already would have bought it. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. so they're operating either from ignorance or rationalization. They're operating either, I didn't realize a better new way existed to solve this problem, or rationalization. We tried to solve that inventory problem 18 months ago, and we fell on our sword, and it was horrible. So, Well, and then the sales reps compound that by focusing purely on logic and facts, right? Am I going to be yeah, able to sell this customer? If I give them an ROI calculator, then they're going to be golden. They're going to get it. They're going to understand it. That's all they need. And the fault of that goes to product marketing. If you look at the product marketing most companies do, it's noun-oriented, fact-oriented. Here's all the information you'd ever want to know about our cool product. But they're not teaching the salespeople how the customers use the products to respond to specific events in their daily, in their daily lives. Exactly. But the cloud's forcing them to think that way now because with the cloud, they don't have the cool product to demo anymore. They're forced to talk about end user usage, before how they used to do their job before they had these capabilities, how they do it now, how they use it. Mm -hmm. And 
I started selling that way at 28 years old because that's the only way I knew. So now I can tell you consciously why that worked so well. But back then I couldn't have. I didn't know the power of the story I was telling and I didn't know how compelling it was to be able to offer buying vision questions to people. Andy, let's just say that you're getting ready to leave the office at five o'clock on Friday early. You're trying to leave at three o'clock because your kid has a soccer game. And right before you leave, your biggest vendor calls you up and says, Andy, those hundred widgets that you're expecting on Monday aren't going to be there. In the old world, before that MRP system I was selling was around, that guy's weekend would have been ruined. He would have been there the whole weekend trying to figure out which customer orders were going to be negatively impacted by that vendor not delivering. With my product, I could say, well, what if you could send Xerox a request to reschedule your plant and it would show you in advance all those commitments you'd made that you're going to have to call those customers and it'll even list them by customer and phone number. So first thing Monday morning, you can get on the phone, you can call them all right. and apologize, but still go make your kids soccer game. So in other words, that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach salespeople to get the buyer to want to buy it, to volunteer to buy it because they have such a big juicy vision of how they could do their job better, how they could achieve goals and solve problems that they can't today if they had that capability. Okay. Well, I want to come back and we're going to take a short break. I want to come back and, and get into the specifics of how we teach this storytelling technique to sales reps and, and make it stick. You know, as you talked about, you know, the shortcoming of 80% yeah. of the reps forgetting within two weeks. So anyway, I'll be back with my guest, Michael Bosworth. We'll be back in just a second. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Okay, welcome back with my guest today, Mike Bosworth. So we've been talking about the power of story and to be able to make that an emotional connection and talking about really transforming how we train salespeople. And so what you've been writing about this in the last several years so what are you finding in terms of most successful ways to develop the emotional intelligence of sales reps and have them identify with the use of story as a powerful tool for themselves? Well, the, 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 the real objective is to help salespeople quickly build real trust. And we have three components to our trust model. One is one component is competence. If the person on the other end of the phone with you or across the desk from you doesn't believe you're competent, doesn't believe that you understand their world, they're not going to buy from you. Second component of trust is character. The person across the desk from you is going to have to conclude 
that you are a person with character, a person who can admit their mistakes and be accountable and and be responsible. Um, they have to conclude that or they're not going to buy from you. And the third thing is, is they have to feel emotionally connected, and that's the EQ piece. So in order to help salespeople complete that trust model with all their clients, we offer different types of stories. So there's two types of character stories we teach them. One is their who am I story, which is a three-minute story about their own professional journey, some of the struggles and lessons along the way, so they conclude, gee, this person has character. We also have to teach them their company story, their organizational story, the who I represent story, and the real purpose of that story is to lead the customer, the prospect, the buyer to the conclusion that this person works for a company that has character, a company that keeps their commitments to their customers. We then have to teach them stories that will lead the buyer to the conclusion that they're competent, that they understand their job, their business, and how they do it without their product. And like that story I, I used to tell the materials manager when I was 28 years old, right. even though I was 28, that story led that materials manager to the conclusion that even though this guy, Mike Bosworth, is only 28, he's competent. He understands my job. Then the other piece, the real key, and this is the hardest thing to teach in our workshops, is what we call story tending or connective listening. Because that initial story, if I meet a prospect for the first time, like that materials manager back when I was selling, my 90-second who I've helped story, I would then say, enough about me. Tell me what's going on here. I knew that story was working well because they'd say, well, do you want to come in and see a plant tour? Let me take you around and show you everything. And so for the next hour, he'd give me a tour and I'd get to ask him all kinds of questions and tend his story. But he allowed me to tend his story. And so at the end of that hour of tending, right before I left, I'd summarize. I say, let me just make sure I understand your situation. You've been here six months, you got two different bills of material you have to deal with. This guy's manager, this guy's manager, this guy's manager. And it would really help you if you had a way to replan your plant overnight. And he'd say, yes. And, and then I'd say, don't take my word for it. Make me prove it to you. And let's set up a way. Let's figure out a way for me to prove to you that you're really going to be able to do that. But that tending process of asking him the questions and then playing back his story, that's the hardest thing to teach. And... Um, so in our workshops, we're teaching people how to build and tell the three types of stories, the personal character story, the company character story, and the competent stories. And then we're spending over a half a day teaching them how to tend the other person's stories. And it's not tending facts. Tending facts is easy. Mm -hmm. It's tending the emotions of the other person. So if you told me, boy, it's, it's really frustrating having two different bills of material, we would teach you in my workshop to say, oh, 
tell me about frustrating. Give me some examples. And we'd start to peel that frustrating onion, if you will. And by teaching salespeople to tend the emotions and the feelings of the buyer, that's where the true trust is earned. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's to some degree you're starting to assume a coach role in oh, that yeah. dimension with your, with your buyer. Yeah, we are. And then, you know, to make it stick, we have to teach, teach sales managers to coach their salespeople in doing this connecting. And so we're teaching sales managers to debrief the sales calls by saying, so who'd you call on today? And he'd say, well, I, I met with this guy, Andy Paul, and I'd say, well, what's his job title? What's his struggle? What insight did you help him see? And what does he want us to prove to him? And I, I debrief that, and I say, all right, write that into an email, and I want to see that email before we send it to that guy. So we're teaching sales managers for 30 days after the workshop. They've, in essence, got to debrief every significant sales call where that seller was out there trying to build trust and connect. And if we find that the seller missed a key element of the buyer's story, I would say to him, all right, call him back up and say, you know, Andy, I forgot to ask you a couple of questions. You have five minutes for me and fill in the blanks of that story and only put it in writing back to the uh, prospect once the story has all the key components. Because we have a, a model for how to build stories and there's five key components. And we have a color system. So the model has uh, a setting, a complication, an aha moment, a turning point, a potential resolution, and a, uh, uh, a morale, if you will. Or yeah, a moral, a, a very a classic story structure. Moral, yeah. So it's basically teaching salespeople that it's much better to offer insight to a potential buyer by telling him or her a story about one of their peers than for you as a salesperson to say to that buyer, you know, I've got a much better way for you to do your job and here's what you need to do. Because people hate being told what they need to do. Yet the more expertise most salespeople gain, the more they fall into the here's what you need to do conversations, which really turns buyers off. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they stop listening. Mm -hmm. Because they gained expertise. Yeah. What but happens, I mean, your expertise becomes your enemy when you're in sales. Yeah, if you're trying to make it about, at that point, you're making it about yourself instead of the, the buyer. Right. right, yeah. Yeah, and they don't, they don't have time for that. I mean, they, they understand, especially these days, you know, with access to information, they pretty much understand at some level what you do, right? So mm -hmm. when I always hate it when sales reps, you know, you work with them, but, yeah, they get in a situation these days where they default always to that what I call sort of really top of funnel selling. And just... Yeah. Show up, throw up, you know, pray and spray. And, you know, it's a great quote I love from uh, John Steinbeck, actually, about stories. And he said, you know, if a story is not about the hearer, he or she will not listen. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. Yes. And really? it's, 
and uh, you know, I, I, I use that in my workshops with, with clients and when I talk to people, clients and customers and their sales teams, that's the, that's the power of story. People want to hear about themselves. Would you send me that quote? Yeah, I will. I'd appreciate it. I'm going to use that quote too. I like that. Yeah, it's a great quote. John Steinbeck. So, um, I think it's from, actually, I think it's from East of Eden, actually, if you've read that book. So, um, well, good. Well, that's great. And for people who want to learn more, we're going to give Michael a chance here in just a few minutes to tell you where you can learn more about learning how to sell with a story and make that deep emotional connection with your your prospects. But we're moving to the last segment of the show where I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And the first okay. one is, is a hypothetical scenario where you, Mike Bowsworth, play the leading role in that you've just been hired as a new sales manager, at a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out and the CEO desperately wants to get things unstuck and on the right track. So what two things could you do in your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? I would um, want to develop a list. I'd interview all the people I could and find out who are the, I want to know the user buyer personas. I want a list of the people that our salespeople are going to have to be able to have intelligent conversations with about the usage of our product. Mm -hmm. So job title, and some of them are users, and some of them are buyers, and some of them are both. Right. And then the second thing is, is once I had that list, I would work with that company and say, all right, we need a really good 90-second killer story for each of those user-buyer personas about real people and how they used to do their job before they had our product and now how they do it now and what are the results. Once I had that, I could teach those salespeople in two and a half days how to go out and dramatically change their lives. Love it. Great answer. Love it. Great answer. All right. Well, good. So a couple of rapid fire questions for you. You can give me one word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you, Mike Bosworth, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? I think my own most powerful sales attribute is the experiences I've had in helping other vice presidents of sales dramatically improve productivity. So, so your, track, your track record. That. My track record, yeah. Yep. yeah. Who's your sales role model? My sales role model was Jim Campbell, who was the, a former IBMer, and he was the one who was Ross Perot's boss at IBM. He's the founder of Xerox Computer Services, and he was the best salesperson I ever knew or watched in my life. He was magic. Yeah, I think we, hopefully we all have had somebody like that in our lives that we were able to learn from. Yeah. So besides one of your own books, what's one book every salesperson should read? I like Daniel Pink's book, To Sell as Human, because too many people today still, you know, their skin crawls when they, they think about being sold something. And Daniel Pink's book makes it about influence. And any human being who is in a position to want to influence another human being Guess what? You're in sales. Yeah. And influence is pull where persuasion is push. Right. And most 
most people don't like being pushed, but they love being pulled. And as he said in his book, fully three quarters of white collar workers in America believe that influencing others is part of their role. Yeah. Well, how about being a parent of teenagers and trying to influence <laughs> them not to text while they drive? Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. All right, last question for you. So this is a tough question of the day is, is what music's on your playlist right now? Prince. Which one? Prince. Okay. He passed away a few days ago. Oh, and <laughs> yeah. I was saying there. I think you had said something else. So Prince, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I, I was a fan, and I have a, a quick, a short uh, Prince story. Ten years ago, when my sons were 26 and 29, they're now 36 and 39, I kind of twisted their arm and got them both to go to a Prince concert with me. And the only reason they went is because they knew Dad really wanted to see it. And, you know, they kind of came to accommodate me. They, they, they weren't Prince fans. And halfway through that concert, I, I looked at their faces and their jaws were dropped. Yeah. They were so blown away by the talent of Prince right? and yeah. his ability to, well, you know, most people when they play electric guitar, their faces all scrunch up and they look kind of funny. Prince, when you watch video of him, no one looked cooler playing electric guitar in the whole history of the universe than Prince. He was amazing. And he could dance and write. And I think he was a genius. And so uh, I'm ODing on Prince right now. Yeah, me too. I found myself singing Purple Rain to myself all weekend. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a great, uh, if you get a chance to see uh, Springsteen singing that uh, to his concert this past weekend uh, on YouTube. Great, great video to watch, uh, really. Yeah. Moving version of Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, Mike, thanks for joining me. Um, so tell folks how they can find out more about you. Um, well, the, the easiest way is just go to MikeBosworth.com, and you know you can see the book. And uh, you will also see on our website that two times a year I do a public um, Story Seekers workshop where anybody can come to on a onesie-twosie basis. I do my January um open workshop in Southern California in San Diego. And I do my uh, midsummer one in July in the Pacific Northwest. And this uh, July 19th through 21, I'm doing a public story secrets workshop on Orcas Island. Details on our website. I'd love to have you for two and a half days and transform the way you connect with people. Excellent. Great information. Well, again, thanks for being on the show. And people who are listening, remember, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Michael Bosworth, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. 
With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.